Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark. We're back into Mark today, chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to jump with us there. If uh, you want to jump online, you can go to the summitstl.info. There's a sermon notes card there that has all the information about where we'll be today and the passage that we're in as well. Let me read it for us. It says this. Mark wrote this. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed, and the demon gone. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you like tests? (laughs) I do. It depends is the answer. Come on, you guys. The answer to every question is always it depends, it depends, it depends. It depends what kind of test it is. It depends what kind of test it is. There's all different kinds of tests. There are tests for evaluation. So all of my daughters and my youngest recently just took the ACT for the umpteenth, or all of them combined. You know, I think I paid for 10 or 12 ACT tests. Some of your kids are now taking map testing, wherever they are, right, to do the evaluation to show what you know. There are tests for research. There's a famous test, you may have heard of it, called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. It was a delayed gratification test in 1972. Basically, it was a study where they put kids in a room and a child was offered a choice between one immediate reward, a marshmallow, Or if they waited, they could have two marshmallows. And it's a really interesting study. The test showed, the research showed that children who were able to wait longer for their preferred rewards tended to have better life outcomes. Wonder which marshmallow you would have chosen. (laughs) There are tests that are intended to trick We see all throughout the Bible that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law used tests in a way to trick Jesus so that they could discredit him. How do you feel about the idea that God tests us? Well, it depends on what kind of test it is. Oftentimes in scripture, we see Jesus testing people. When 
they were feeding the 5,000. It said Jesus did this to test his disciples. He tests people he encounters. He's oftentimes testing and challenging people, and it's challenging. (laughs) And when you think about Jesus, sometimes we have this pretty painted picture of blonde Jesus on the wall, right, that's always nice to people. But when you really look at the encounters that he has with people, it's, it's kind of strange the way he engages with people. In fact, this fall we'll get to Mark chapter 10 where he engages the rich young ruler. And in this encounter that he has with him, at the end of the encounter he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. I mean, imagine if I stood up here and did a sermon. At the end of my sermon, he's like, okay, I'll get, I said, okay, guys, here we go. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Let's pray. Amen. You'd be like, what happened to Brian? What about John chapter 4 where Jesus interacts with the woman at the well? And in this interaction, he says to her, how many husbands do you have? I'm pretty sure that there has never in the history of the world been a church that offered an evangelism class that said, we're going to teach you how to bring people to Jesus by asking about their dating life. (laughs) Jesus likes to make people uncomfortable. Today's passage is another uncomfortable test. Jesus uses some very intriguing language to test an unclean woman. And her response gives us an example to follow for any and every test that we may face in our lives. You see, Jesus, he doesn't test us for research. (laughs) He doesn't test us to evaluate us. And he certainly doesn't test us to trick us. He tests us to strengthen us. You see, my proposition for you from this passage today, church, is that God tests us to deepen our faith, not to discredit our faith. God tests us to deepen our faith, not discredit our faith. So we're going to engage on three aspects of this today. We're going to talk about the test. We're going to talk about the answer. And then we'll end by talking about the study guide. The test, the answer, and the study guide. So let's talk about the test. In Mark chapter 7, in our passage here, for a little bit of context, it's important always to remember that we take little pieces of the Gospel of Mark each week, but there's a flow that's definitely happening, intentionality behind Mark, the writer here. He's trying to lead us to something. And it shouldn't surprise us that this passage comes immediately after an interaction, an intense interaction, that Jesus had not just with the Pharisees, but also with his disciples. And in that interaction, they were engaging with what makes someone clean. And the disciples and the Pharisees believed and understood that the way someone was made clean was mostly from the outside. It was what they ate and what they did. It was how they dressed. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. It's not what makes you clean. It's the heart. It's the heart that makes you clean. And so immediately after this interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus goes to Mark tells us, this place of Tyre and Sidon. I wanted to show it to you on a map, actually, because I think it'll help us a little bit to see what's going on. You can see 
Jesus spent a lot of time in Judea, the Dead Sea is there, and then up to the place of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is. So I'm kind of in the upper third of that, see where the Sea of Galilee is. And what I want you to notice is above that in Phoenicia, on the coast, on the left coast, is where you can see Tyre, and then all the way up is Sidon. And what we should notice from this is that Jesus hung a lot kind of in the middle of Israel, so there's a very intentional point of Jesus to go to the north here. And what we know about this and Jesus going to the north is that these people were considered unclean. For the Jews, these were the outsiders. These were those who didn't belong. And Jesus encounters a woman that Mark actually tells us twice, but makes very clear, has three strikes against her. Verse 26, it says, The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. First strike, she's a woman. Second strike, she's a Gentile, and specifically a Syrophoenician. And the third strike was she was most likely unclean just because her daughter had a demon. And she comes and approaches Jesus, and the text tells us that she begs Jesus. She cries out over and over to Jesus to heal her daughter. So the test. Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, there's been a lot of conversation and interesting debate about what is going on in this verse and what Jesus is doing. Now, with the setup, I would remind you that Jesus doesn't always just have these really obvious interactions with people. Sometimes he's doing something intentional and specific. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's actually telling a parable a story to invite her in. Stories are meant to invite us into and think about something and and change how we understand and see things. And so Jesus tells this parable. It's It's a picture of a family eating and there's these kids that would come to the dad for their food and then what would happen after they ate is then the animals, the dogs, he referred specifically to a dog, would come and eat. Now, the reason why it's complicated is because actually in that culture, the Jews would use the language of dog in a very derogatory way. In fact, they would use it in an insulting way, and we can see other places in Scripture where it was used in an insulting way. Some commentators argue that Jesus is actually using a different word for dog here, but I think Jesus is intentionally using the word dog to make this controversial. That, that he's, he's using this in the parable. It's a story. So what that helps us with is that he's not insulting her. He's not making a racist statement. It's a theological test. Jesus is saying something to this woman and inviting her into something profound. So let's just pick apart the aspects of this sentence if we can. He says, the children, which refers to Israel, so the people of Israel, he's saying, The children should be fed first. Now that word first is really important because she picks up on that in her response to the answer. But he's basically saying, I have come. He's putting himself in the grand picture of the story of the gospel. He's saying, the children need to eat first and and they need to then, after that, the dogs, the others, can eat. Now it's important to note 
about tests, that tests are different from temptations. Tests are different from temptations. Temptations are designed for failure and to diminish us. Tests by God are designed to deepen us. Two points that I would like us to think about and ponder about and how God uses tests. First is tests are an opportunity for us to deepen our faith. That God is using tests not to diminish us, but to strengthen us. And the second thing is this. Tests are designed for us to pass. They're designed for us to pass. Now, what do I mean by pass? See, oftentimes what we think it means is to win. My life is better, so I pass the test. I'm happier, I'm richer, I got the job, so I pass the test. But in the economy of God, passing means our trust in Jesus as Lord increases. Hear that again, because it's essential to what it means that God tests us. That tests are meant for the deepening of our faith, which means that there's a trust that comes from our hearts that looks to Jesus more, our increased Lord of our lives. And sometimes that comes with loss. So what is the test? What is Jesus doing in this sentence with her? Well, Jesus is giving this unclean outsider woman simply an opportunity to trust God over what she thinks about herself and over what culture says about herself. Jesus is giving this unclean outsider woman an opportunity to trust God over what she thinks about herself and what the culture tells her about herself. In essence, he's really testing her at her weakest point. He points his finger on her Achilles heel to find out who she really thinks that she is and what really brings her value. That's this confrontation that he has with her. He's basically saying to her, let the children eat first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And he's confronting her understanding about what she thinks about who she is and where she fits into this parable. What would he test us on, do you think? <laughs> what would he test you on? What is your Achilles heel? What do you look to to bring you value and importance? Is it your occupation? Is it your kids? Is it more internal, people's perception of you? What do you find yourself always defending? Hmm. What is it that God would test you on? Is it how you spend your money? How you spend your time? The defending of your political views? What Jesus is doing is he's giving her and us 
an opportunity to deepen our faith and for us to pass. He wants to be Lord. So we have to ask, what is our Achilles heel? Where is Jesus testing you and asking you to deepen your faith in him? I'll offer you a point of application here in the middle of the sermon, maybe a challenging point of application. In Psalm 139, there's a powerful and profound prayer that I think helps us. David wrote this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, or literally, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, do you like tests? <laughs> Would you consider coming before the Lord of the universe and asking him to increase your trust in his lordship by praying that prayer? You know, when we say we're going to follow Jesus, he's going to invite us into the beauty of a life that he paid for us to have, and that means making him Lord over all things. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch writer and philosopher, had this to say. It's a great sentence. He wrote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So Jesus tests her to see if she'll trust him as Lord. And she answers him. Yes, Lord, not even the dogs under the table, yet even the dogs, it's important, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So Jesus comes in, he brings this test, he's saying, he puts this parable in front of her, he says, hey, think of this picture, you're at a table, the Jews, the Israelites, I've come for them, they need to eat first, and then... They're going to eat first, and then the dogs can come and eat. And it is seemingly clear that he's implying or referring to her as the dog in this picture. And she could have quickly responded in defense of what she thought about herself in that moment. She could have said, you have no right, or who do you think you are, or that's not fair. No, instead, each word of her response, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs are profound and unique. Two things I would point out to us. First, she acknowledges the redemptive story of God that Jesus refers to. She says, yes, Lord. She, she's, she understands that what happened was there was a role that Israel was to play in God's grand story. It was important that they were God's chosen people, that God did call Israel first, and there's much to say about that. But what we should understand is that Israel was called not instead of others, but for the sake of others. 
Hear that again, that Israel was called not instead of others, but for the sake of others. That what God was going to do was through the people of Israel, that they were supposed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. The phrase that we like to use there is that they were blessed to be a blessing, right? Blessed to be a blessing. And she is saying, in this yes, Lord, she is saying, I know what Israel was supposed to do, and I need to be blessed. She, she acknowledges in some way, she's like, I get that I am on the outside here. I am unworthy. I am an outsider. I am in need. I am, to say it, a dog. But she recognizes there is enough blessing for her to receive from Jesus. She's saying, but the dogs get the crumbs too. You have something for me too. You see, Jesus' test was to help her understand a spiritual reality. And the language in what happens in his response is actually that he was amazed. He specifically is amazed by her statement. Because what she is saying is, Lord, she's not saying this. Here's what she's not saying. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve, fix me, solve my problems on the basis of my goodness, which is often how we come before God. Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. No, she comes to the table with a beautiful gospel statement, and she says, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. Do you see what she actually does and flips it here? She's, she comes and she says, you just called me a dog. And she says, yes, Lord, I'm not worthy to be here, but you are so good that I can be here. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. She believes that in the mission of God, Unworthy people are welcomed because there is more than enough for the unworthy. That God's mercy is so deep that there is no one so far away that it couldn't reach. Biblical scholar James Edwards, he wrote this, She appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. I love that. Can I just say that? I just want to read that sentence one more time. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. Do you trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus? I've shared this story before, but it is worthy of being shared again. There is a story told of Alexander the Great who had a general that approached him after many years of service. And 
the general asked Alexander the Great if he would pay for the wedding of his daughter. And Alexander agreed, and he told him to obtain the funds from his treasurer. So this general goes to the treasurer, and he asks for a lot of money. And so the treasurer goes back to Alexander, complaining that this general was basically taking advantage of Alexander's generosity. That he was asking for an exorbitant amount of money, even enough to host the largest wedding that Greece had ever seen. So Alexander the Great thought about the situation for a moment. Then he waved his hand dismissively and he said, give him what he wants. The treasurer looks bewildered and Alexander responds and says, my general pays me two compliments. He believes that I'm generous enough to grant his request and that I'm rich enough to afford it. My friends, our God is generous enough (laughs) to grant your request, and he is rich enough, no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how sinful, to afford it. Do you see Jesus like that? Do you trust his sufficiency and his surplus? Do you trust in his generosity and his richness? I am so struck by how this woman, in one of the darkest moments of her life, the potential death of her child, comes to a place with God where she confesses face to face with Jesus. I trust in your sufficiency and surplus. I trust in your generosity and richness. And Jesus says, then I grant your request. That, that there's an amazement to what he sees in her faith. So how do we grow like that? How do we grow to have faith like that? Well, the study guide. <laughs> I am not great at studying. I am a huge procrastinator. I don't know if you're like this, but like sometimes whenever there's something I really have to do, especially when it comes to studying, so a lot of you know I'm going to Wheaton, working on my master's there, and when it's time to study, I'll clean, right? Like it's like, hey, I'm just gonna clean the house, I'm gonna, whatever it, clean bathrooms, it's so much more fun to, to clean to me than to study. I'm just not good at it, I'm not good at sitting still, I, I don't, anyway, it's not about me this morning, but the reality is, when I do study, for all the teachers in here, when I do study, then I do better on the test. It is a reality, that is true. And here's what I'm inviting us today to do. I think what this woman shows us is that we need to spend more time really experiencing the mercies of God in our life. That, in essence, the study guide for this is not so much to just learn more, 
but actually to experience God's mercies day in and day out. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. I was just reading this this morning, actually. Paul wrote this, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That what Paul's saying here is he's saying there's something incredibly unique about what's happened to someone who has put their faith in Jesus. That he's actually, there's an experiential thing that should be happening in us where we're not just understanding, but when we're experiencing the mercies of God, the love of God, that there's something transformative, whether we're in a test or we're not, that, that the study guide for us is to be asking and pondering and saying, God, I want to experience the beauty of your mercies and love every day. What this woman knew was that the love and mercies of God were so deep and so wide and so long and so high that they could even reach to the corner of her world. And we can only trust, we will only come trust him if his mercy is big enough to welcome us too. And so we need to sit at the feet of Jesus on a regular basis and to use the pun purposefully, feast in his mercies. Do you know how to do that? Do you do that? I want to do it right now. I'm wondering if we could right now, as we conclude, do this right now. You see, I find that I'm personally really good at studying all of my shortcomings, all of my failures, all of the reasons that I shouldn't be welcome to the table. And I'm not as good at experiencing the mercies of God that are new every morning with a supply and a surplus and a richness and a generosity that go beyond measure so that the outcast and the sinner and the struggling are all welcomed at the table. So I wonder if just for a moment here, you could imagine this with me. Imagine walking into a room, the most elegant room you've ever been in. And immediately when you step into the room, you feel a sense of unworth, that you don't belong, that you haven't earned the right to be there, that the struggle that you had yesterday or last night or this week or that's been bothering you for months and months immediately comes to mind. And as you enter in this room, all you can think about is your sin. And you have this sense <laughs> that you're going to have to pass a test to be allowed to stay. So you think about running. But suddenly you feel at peace because a man with nail-scarred hands puts his hand on your shoulder, pulls out a chair for you, and says, sit here. He says, there was a test you were supposed to take, and there's no way you would have passed it. So be at peace, because I took it for you.
be at peace because I had mercy on you. And my mercies aren't so small that you could just know you don't have to take it. My mercies are so rich and so generous that you now are welcomed at the table, that you now are my son or my daughter, that you now are my friend and my beloved. My friends, that is the good news for us this morning. That the one who was perfect, who had studied for all eternity, stepped in to take the test for you and me. And it might sound crazy, but if you come and follow him, you won't just get a passing grade. You'll be invited to the table. Because his surplus and his sufficiency, and his generosity, and his richness are beyond measure. And what he longs to do is to deepen our faith in him as Lord and not discredit it. God's mercies mean there is forgiveness for the guilty, there is compassion for the helpless, there is strength for the weak, and there is richness for the poor. And this is how we study. (laughs) We experience the mercies of God. We fall on the mercies of God. And I hope today for all of us that we might approach tests differently. I hope today our desire to not just know about in studying, but actually to experience by studying the mercies of God, that our desire to do that will grow. And I hope today that actually this morning (laughs) we have actually experienced those mercies and you will know just a little more deeply what we say the reckless love of God, his running after you is so rich and so deep and so generous that you would be moved to trust him more. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking that you test us to discredit us. And help us see today that you test us so that we might be overwhelmed by the surplus and sufficiency, by the richness and the generosity of your mercy, love, and grace towards us. And Father, we humbly ask that that would transform us to become gracious, merciful, and loving people too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.